Welcome to the Eastern Hills Audio Podcast. We exist to help as many people as possible take their next step towards finding community and following Christ. Maybe you've got questions about Jesus. Maybe you're good with Jesus, just not his church. Maybe you're feeling disconnected and want to reconnect. We think you'll find our messages both helpful and hopeful. So enjoy. Hey, my name is Rob. I get to serve as the pastor here at Eastern Hills. I want to say Merry Christmas to you. If this is your first time tuning in with us today, welcome. We're glad that you've uh, chosen to be a part of our online service. If, uh, if you're new to Eastern Hills, we, we like to do series and we're kicking off a new one today. So you, you picked a great day to, to join us. Now, before we get started, I want to say a quick thank you to our worship and creative arts team. They did a great job getting us ready for Christmas. I don't know if you can see this beautiful backdrop behind me, but they did a fantastic job. They've been working really hard. So do me a favor, go ahead and send them a note of encouragement this week just to show uh, your uh, appreciation. If you send it to office at easternhills.org, they'll get it to where they need to go. Now, to get us started today, here's a question. What's one of the worst Christmas gifts that you've ever received. So, uh, you know, wherever you're at, if you're watching uh, at home online with some family and friends, maybe you talk amongst yourselves or, you know, if you're in the chat, you might throw it out in the chat. You know, maybe you're subscribed to our Apple podcast and you're getting caught up during the week on the way to work. You can yell it out in the car. But what's one of the worst Christmas gifts that you've ever received? For me, uh, it it came from my dad. My mom and dad got divorced when I was five years old. He was in the Navy and he traveled around a lot. So sometimes Christmas gifts didn't always get here on time. But whenever they were late, they were always great. And so whenever it was late, I was kind of hoping that it would be late because he kind of would compensate through a, a bigger and better gift. So this particular Christmas, my sophomore year at high school, Christmas gift came late. I had great expectations. I opened up the wrapping. And this is what I discover. <laughs> this black and white portable television set. And I'm thinking, what am I supposed to do with this? It doesn't play CDs or compact discs. I can't hook up a video game system to this. What am I going to do? You know, show up to school, pull it out of my backpack, you know, hang out with my friends during lunchtime, you know, throw on some Wheel of Fortune, some Price, price is Right, you know, maybe some soap operas. These are the days of our lives. I'm like, what, what am I going to do with this? So this goes down as one of my worst Christmas gifts, and I I like to give my dad a hard time about it. And you might say, you're spoiled, and you're probably right when you say that. But listen, we've all had that gift that we're thinking, maybe I I wish I never received it, but also maybe I wish I would have never gave it, because here's the thing. You can't undo what's already been done. And if you're new to church, new to Christianity, new to the Bible, you're not a Bible scholar, you can understand this principle, because it's just true of life. You can't undo what's already been done. Though there's a growing trend to undo Christmas, and hear me out, Starbucks cups, you know, they don't put Christmas in there because that word's offensive. They don't say Merry Christmas, they say Merry Coffee. Uh, And this isn't the first attempt to try to undo Christmas. If we go back in time, uh, the original Grinch, Oliver Cromwell, in fact, in uh, 1647, what took place is after the Civil War, uh, the Church of England was abolished And the Presbyterian uh, system was implemented. And one of the things they did was they did away with holy days, including Christmas. And so the 12 days of Christmas traditionally started on actually December 25th, and then it would go 12 days. But they would instruct uh, shopkeepers, listen, you need to stay open on Christmas Day. And they had... P. 
people patrolled the streets in, in certain locations with spiked clubs. I mean, they were set on canceling Christmas. And the result were riots and actually it led to a second civil war. And all because Christmas was canceled. So I'm just saying, maybe some governors in certain parts of the country might want to pay attention to any idea of canceling Christmas. You know, it's, it is a little strange, hear me out, that I can be on an airplane, take off my mask and, and close proximity and have meal and drink, but, you know, can't do 10 or more at, at a home around the holidays. I'm just saying, you know, I'm not trying to get political, but it's just something to think about when it comes to the idea of trying to cancel Christmas. But let me encourage you with this truth. For the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this reality that Christmas is not canceled because Christmas cannot be canceled. You can't undo what's already been done. Listen, you're not getting in the time machine with Marty McFly and the DeLorean and undoing Christmas. There's no telephone booth with Bill and Ted to try to undo Christmas. You can't. Christmas is historical. It's the account of God becoming man and dwelling amongst his people. And today, what John's going to help us understand is that Christmas is historical and therefore personal. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to John, John's interesting. John was, you know, part of the, the inner circle. And through John, we get about 5% of the New Testament. So out of all of the 12 disciples, John gives us a significant chunk that we read about uh, in the New Testament. But one of the best facts about John, and one of my favorite facts, you know, after Jesus gives, you know, the marching orders to the disciples to go forth and make disciples, you know, we, we call that the Great Commission, Jesus also gives an instruction to John to take care of Mary. The same Mary from the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph. John is to take care of her. And I find this intriguing because if I'm John, you know, in those moments, I'm leaning in and say, okay, you know, give me the inside scoop about Jesus. I mean, did he always do the dishes? Did he ever fight with his brothers? Did he ever talk back? I mean, tell me about the first, you know, project he did with Papa Joseph and the family business and carpentry. I mean, what did he choose to make? Or give me the scoop on the first Christmas, that long trek, that long journey. Tell me about the innkeepers, the whole deal with the census. You know, what did Joseph really say when he found out that you were, <laughs> you were pregnant? Tell me about that conversation. As Americans, we'd probably say, did it snow that first Christmas? No, it didn't snow. I don't know where Hollywood got that. It's Israel. It's not snowing on Christmas. But listen, in all of his writings, John doesn't choose to focus in on what we would call the traditional Christmas story in the manger scene. No, John's version of Christmas is both historical and therefore personal. Follow along now. I'm going to be in 1 John's letter towards the, the end of the New Testament. And I'm going to read the first uh, five verses of chapter one. It says, uh, that, which was her, uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no 
darkness at all. Now, you know, maybe you, you, you consider yourself a skeptic and you have a hard time with, with stories like Christmas and a virgin birth, birth and the manger and all of that. And you're thinking, I don't know. I think it's just a feel good story. You know, here's what skeptics would claim. Skeptics would say, you know, we cannot know anything about history because we cannot know that the person recording a particular event is telling the truth. They would say, you know, that magical Christmas that you had as a child where everything clicked and, you know, when you think about Christmas, you go back to that moment in time. They would say, well, that's just your version. We can't know for sure that that Christmas happened the way that you remember it. And they would even go, say, they would go, go as far to say that nothing past the present moment can be truly known with certainty. Now, you know, when it comes to President Washington, we can't really know if, you know, if he was really the President of the United States or, you know, King Henry VII, if he really, you know, initiated the Reformation because we don't really know if people were telling the truth. Now, historians would say, okay, here's where we're in alignment. You can't know anything with with 100% certainty, but there are some certain tools that we can use to know whether that historical moment is trustworthy. So the question I want to answer quickly before we unpack 1 John here is what makes history trustworthy? One of the tools that we look at are multiple independent sources, several voices addressing the same event or person in history. And so with biblical Christianity in the pages of the New Testament, we have documentation from both Christian scholars, but also non-Christian scholars that address the birth of Christ as a historical moment of time. Something else for us to consider are the bad guys. I mean, you could have the uh, supporters of the story, those that stand to gain from the story, you know, and, and their version of the story. But what about the oppressors, those that are against, you know, the key players involved, the, the bad guys? So for the Christmas story, sure, there's Joseph and Mary, but there's also the villain, the enemy, King Herod. And what you want to look at from a historical standpoint is to see, does everyone's story align? And so we have that with the Christmas story. You also have it with the embarrassing facts. These are the moments that you would leave out of the story if you were trying to make something up. For example, how Joseph's reaction when he finds out that, that Mary's pregnant. I mean, his natural inclination is to divorce her in secret to not bring shame amongst the community. Now, he did that out of a posture and love and from, and from a cultural perspective, trying to protect her from the consequences of her potentially being pregnant outside of marriage. But it's also the type of fact that if you were trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes, you would leave that fact out of the story. Two other tools would be eyewitness testimony and the date of authorship. These two things go hand in hand. You know, we want to have the eyewitness accounts. We want people that were there during that time. But it's also important to look at the dates of those eyewitness testimony in conjunction with the writers. An example of this outside of the Bible would be, you know, I'm going to pay more attention to an historian writing about the life of Benjamin Franklin in the 1700s that lived during that period of time. Far more so than someone that's writing about the historical account of Benjamin Franklin in the 2000s. Because the, the, the man or woman that's writing about it that lived during the 1700s, they were there. They could go and interview the key people involved in saying, did it really happen the way that I heard that it happened? And in John's case, you know, his writings take place 50 years after the, the arrival of Christ. So within a realistic time period, people that would read the writings that were adamantly opposed against the cause of Christianity could have said, and, you know, could have said, you know, this isn't true. This didn't happen the way that it happened. But the story of Christmas is historical and therefore personal. And you can hear it 
in John's words. He says, that which was from the beginning, you know, before creation came into existence, you know, we worship uh, a triune God, one God, three distinct persons. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at and our hands have touched. You know, those are the type of details that separate stories like the Christmas story from tall tales or legends. You know, what makes his birth and the miracles and his death and resurrection more than just something that's uplifting and inspiring are those details. You know, for example, in John's gospel, chapter six, we read about the great account of, of Jesus walking on water. But it, it throws in a little detail of uh, Jesus just a couple miles out, they saw him walking on water which is far different from the legends that were written during that time. They didn't put details in there like that. That's what helps us have confidence that this is an historical account. And if it's an historical account, it makes it a personal account. John says, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. What he's saying is that wisdom had become a person. That God had moved from this abstract thought or philosophy into flesh and blood. Either John is lying or it happened the way that it happened, but you can't call it legend because of the details that set apart the writings of the New Testament from other writings that were happening during this time. So it's historical and therefore it's personal. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So here's the tension. If it's not historical, if Christmas is not history, if Christmas is just a story that we tell ourselves around Christmas to make ourselves feel better about life, if it's not historical, then it's not personal. In fact, if it's not historical, Christmas is depressing. And here's why. If it's not history, if it's not an actual account that took place, this is where you end up. I like the teachings of Jesus. I like the meaning of these stories. The meaning of these stories is to love one another, serve one another. I like that. But it doesn't matter if these things really happened. What matters is that you're a good person. You see, if Christianity is just all about how to be the best possible person that you can be, if Christianity is just another idea out there on how to be the best version of ourselves, then Christianity is crushing. Because the hero of Christianity, the standard of Christianity, is Jesus. And you and I know that we could never live up to the standard that he sets. We could never live a perfect life. We could never perfectly obey God. And so if it's, that's the standard, is to live like Jesus, we'll, we'll always fall short. But that's not the story of Christianity. The message of Christianity is that Christmas happened that God came and he lived the life that we could not live and he died the death that we deserved to die. And if that's true, if that's historical, then that makes Christmas so personal because when we believe that that took place and we place our trust in him and him alone, now we get to have a personal relationship with the God of the universe. And that's what John is getting at when he says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have, there's the key word here, fellowship with us. 
and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That word fellowship is, comes from a Greek word, koinonia, and it drives the point home that if Christmas is true, then we can have a real, living, thriving relationship with our creator. And that's why we sing songs at Christmas with great joy and anticipation and hope. It's fascinating to me that we'll sing some of these Christmas songs with profound, deep theological truths. And we don't even realize what we're singing. The consequences of these words, if they are true. An example is, Come to Bethlehem and see him whose birth the angels sing. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. If this is true, this means that God is no longer some remote idea or force to cower to, but that we can know him personally. That the historical person of Jesus, fully man and fully God, is what separates Christianity from all other faiths, all other philosophies, all other religions and the world. You see, some would say that God is so present in all things that God's presence amongst his people is normal. So the Buddhist or the Hindu would say God is present in everything, that God is divine, uh, is the divine spark in everything. And therefore, when you think about Christmas, it's not something to make a big deal about because God amongst us, well, that's normal. He's present in everything. But some would also say that God is so transcendent over all things that God coming as a man is impossible. So Islam would say that Jesus as God is blasphemous. But biblical Christianity lands the plane here. That Jesus' arrival on earth is not normal. It is something to be celebrated. It is profound, but it's also not impossible. That God is so present that when he creates us, he doesn't create us and abandon us. He pursues us despite the brokenness of this world. He's there. He's, he's amongst us. That's, that's Christ's promise. I will be with you always. As biblical Christians, what we believe is that God dwells within us. So where we go, so goes the light of the world. So goes the message and the hope of Christianity. But it's not normal. It is possible and necessary. John says, we write this to make our joy complete. Light and darkness, sin and forgiveness. You know what John's not saying is, I, I need your lives to, to get figured out. I need you to clean up your act. I need you to get it all figured out um, so that I can have joy. What John is saying is, <laughs> I already have joy. But I can't have complete joy unless you believe. You see, what John experienced in his time with Jesus, he would have known this to be true, that ministry is messy. That ministry is this battle between light and darkness. That ministry is this battle between sin and forgiveness. It's historical, but it's so personal. Because Jesus makes it personal. Jesus enters into humanity, into brokenness, into grief, into sorrow, into joy and laughter. He wept, he cried, he laughed, he rejoiced, he listened, he bled, he died, he rose. And for John, that was real because he was there and he experienced it. That's why he says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. 
God is light. And in him, there is no darkness at all. See, from the beginning of time, God has used light in both a physical sense and in a metaphorical sense. In the beginning, through Genesis, we see that Genesis, God creates all things. He speaks it into existence. God said, let there be light, and it existed. But also from a metaphorical sense. In fact, in the next book of the Bible, you go from Genesis to Exodus, we see him represented by a pillar of fire, uh, guiding a group of people that God has identified to represent him to all people in all places. And as they wandered in the wilderness, it was a pillar of fire, a light that guided them. And what we'd also see in the Old Testament is that darkness would represent those that would turn their back on the God who is light. And so you go from Genesis to Exodus and this great period of time passes. And then Isaiah pens these words to a group of people that find themselves in a place wondering, is Christmas canceled? Will the Messiah arrive? When will this take place? And during this period of time, many were waiting to see, will God show up? When Isaiah provided hope by saying, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the deep darkness. A light has dawned. They would see it. They would witness it. They would experience in the world of darkness, a light would dawn. Now, here's what happens. It would take about 400 years before this would come to fruition. In fact, the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, ends like a candle that is just blown out. And this period, the dark ages, the dark years, Jews that would hold on to the notion of the Messiah coming, those that would hold on to their faith, many of them would be murdered waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. And then it happens. In the backwood regions of, of Galilee, Christ arrives on the scene. But even after he's born, even after you know what we read about in Luke's account takes place, it would be another 33 years before all of the pieces that we read about in the Old Testament and the New Testament would come together. And here's what would take place in 33 AD. You see, that story of Exodus and as God led his people through the wilderness, people would look back on that time. Jews would do this through a festival known as the Festival of Tabernacles. And what would take place over a period of eight days is that Jews would build these tents as a, as a way of reminding themselves of what it would have been like for God's people wandering in the wilderness. But that's not the only thing that they would do. They would light up the temple for all of Jerusalem to see. Some would carry light torches and celebration and dancing and the four menorahs around the temple would, would be beaming. And the historian Josephus Josephus writes about how much Jerusalem would be lit up during this time. And it's no coincidence that in, of all the moments that Jesus could show up on the scene and make a significant statement, he chose it during this exact moment and this exact celebration. He shows up and he says this, I am the light of the world. With, with Jerusalem lit up for the world to see and all of the emphasis on light in darkness, Jesus shows up and says, I am the light of the world. 
Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And this is what John experienced. This is what John had heard. This is what John had physically touched. It was historical and therefore personal when he said, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. See, what John's saying is that, you know, before there was Motel 6, there was King Jesus. Motel 6 says, we'll leave the light on. Jesus is saying the light will always be on. It will never go out. He is the light of the world. The darkness cannot overcome the light. But let's be honest. In 2020, we've experienced and witnessed a lot of darkness. But what's true about any powerful light source is that you cannot truly appreciate it until the surrounding environment grows darker and darker. And coincidentally, the light gets brighter and brighter. And this truth is also true of Christmas. That the darker your Christmas, the brighter Jesus will be. And as I say this, there might be an uncomfortable tension within you because we don't think about Christmas as dark. But think about it this way. The darker your Christmas, the brighter Jesus will be. Let me show you. I'm going to bring down the lights here for a moment. And as the lights grow darker, the brighter this light becomes. Throughout this message, I've had this light just flickering and it's been present. And you've been focused on a lot of other things in the message, but this light has remained constant. And it's this time of year where our temptation is to pretend like everything is bright and merry and cheerful and to try to just ignore the darkness. But perhaps like any other Christmas that we've experienced, especially in my lifetime, it is so evident that there is darkness all around us. But this provides a unique opportunity for us to remember the true meaning and significance of Christmas, which is the light of the world has come to be that constant light, that eternal light and darkness. So I want us to take a moment and reflect in contemplation. A real Christmas song. You might not sing it every Christmas, but the lyrics make it a Christmas song. It's an old song, Here I Am to Worship, sung by people all over the world. The light of the world has come down into darkness. Let's reflect on that truth now. Together, love me. Oh. 
This week, I want to invite you to take this next step. I want you to, to turn off the lights on the tree, to get away from the distractions, and to put yourself in, in darkness for a moment, and then to light a candle. And I want you to read what we would call, you know, the traditional Christmas reading of through the Gospel of Luke and all of the details of the census and, and Mary and Joseph's journey and, and Jesus being born. But then I want you to get done and to think about that truth through the lens of John. Because for John, it wasn't just those details. It was the reality that God had come and dwelt amongst his people. That light was entering into darkness. That what was, had been waited upon for hundreds of years was coming into reality. Not an abstract form, but God could be heard. He could be seen. You could physically touch him. That it was real and it was personal. You see, Christmas is historical and therefore personal. It's, it's historical because those that tell us about it were there. They experienced it. They witnessed it. And it's personal because he was born and then he lived that life, setting that standard, demonstrating that he was the Messiah to the point where he would serve us through death. He would be put to death on a, on a cross taking that punishment that we so deserved. But the story doesn't end there. He's risen again. And because this is true, Christianity is personal. That we don't just remember the light of the world, that we receive God's light into our physical beings. Into those areas of our lives that are dark. And the truth of Christmas is this. That Christmas can't be canceled. You can't undo what's already been done. And that's why Christmas is so worth celebrating because this light that we remember today is eternal. Regardless of what's happening on the surface of our lives and the brokenness in humanity, this light will continue to shine bright for all eternity. He is the light of the world. That's the message of Christmas. Would you bow your head and join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we worship you as the God of light, that from the beginning of the time, you've always been that constant, that constant presence guiding us in darkness. And that Christ's life was a light for all of humanity. His death was a light for all of humanity. His resurrection is a light for all of humanity and his return will be a light for all humanity. And that's the true story of Christmas. You can't have Christmas without Easter. That's what makes it incredibly good news. So this Christmas, Father, we worship you in that truth and in all of our darkness and all of our frustrations and all of our hurt and all of our pain, help your light to shine so bright that it's overwhelming that we can't help 
but to respond and worship. As we sit in your presence and remember who you are and what you've done. Pray all of these things in the power of your son, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this message. If so, we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. For more information about Eastern Hills, please check out easternhills.org. We would love to pray for you. Email your request to office at easternhills.org. If you would like to donate to the ministry of Eastern Hills, click the donate button in the upper right-hand corner of our website. We look forward to connecting with you again next week. Take care. God bless.